Hello and welcome to the podcast for the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing science journalism and I'm delighted to be joined by BBC Science correspondent Palab Ghosh. Palab, welcome to the podcast. Hi Gavin. Now Palab, you've been a science journalist for quite a while. What first made you want to report on science as opposed to anything else? Well, I often joke that I've been a science journalist for so long that I covered the extinction of the dinosaurs, <laughs> but it's not been quite that long. I suppose I was, I grew up in the 60s, the moon landings, the moon shots were happening and then there was the moon landing. And I just felt that I wanted to be part of that in some way. I, obviously, as a child, I thought I might want to be an astronaut. Perhaps I was going to, you know, when I grew up, I'd live on the moon with my family. But that turned me on to science. It just shows, I suppose, the power of human spaceflight in terms of galvanising people into science. I think a lot of people of my generation got into science that way and ended up studying physics at Imperial College. But uh, Imperial College also had a very good student newspaper, which I also joined. I found that I enjoyed uh, writing. I didn't write about science at the time. I just did my science degree sure. and I did my writing. Normally, annoying the, the rector at the time. I was uh, <laughs> known. I actually annoyed the rector so much that he decided to put out a rival publication. The student newspaper was called Felix. Yep. So he produced a, a rival publication called Fido, with a picture of a bulldog kicking the cat up the bottom. <laughs> full of all sorts of scandalous stories about me and his miscalculation was that as a 20 year old you kind of revel in that stuff uh, rather than shy from it but anyway it just showed me the power of the press and I suppose sure. that experience showed me that actually you can have quite a big influence uh, as, a, as a member of the press so I joined the trade magazine Electrical Review then yeah. onto New Scientist and then BBC News how has the job of reporting science changed for you over the last 30 years? When I first started on New Scientist, certainly New Scientist wasn't a national newspaper, but a lot of national newspapers had science as the uh, the funny piece, the colour piece. Yeah. Whereas the New Scientist, uh, we were covering serious issues like the loss of the ozone layer and climate change. So myself, and uh, I also worked with uh, Susan Watts of Newsnight, who also went to Imperial College. So I think we were part of a generation that thought, well, actually, science journalists are serious journalists, and we should be on the front page reporting on serious issues. So I think that's been the major change. Yeah. And I think that uh, I, I feel myself to be a journalist first. Uh, I think that there's a value in journalism when it's done correctly, where our job is to challenge and question in the same way that scientists question and challenge each other's scientific papers. And I think that uh, there's a, a, a greater good that's done that if science is perhaps going the wrong way, that it's our job to, to put it right. And now you were reporting on science back in the 1990s and the early 2000s at the time when uh, GM crops were being discussed and assessed in the UK and across Europe. How can journalists report, you know, complexity and uncertainty in science um, in such a, a polarised environment that we had then? Well, th that's where science journalists come in. It was interesting, the whole 
GM crops debate. I was there right from the start. Yeah. If, if those old enough will remember that it all started in the UK with a front page story in August about research done by a Scottish-based researcher, Professor Arpai Pushtai, who'd fed his fed some rats GM potatoes. And uh, I came back from a long weekend to be called by the Today programme saying the Daily Mail has got a front page headline saying GM crops stunt your growth. And at the time, the Daily Mail had had a lot of front page headlines about how mobile phones fry your brains. And I thought, well, perhaps it's been misreported and that sort of thing. But out of due diligence, because I had to do a broadcast the next morning on the Today programme, I, I got through to him. And he said, oh, yes, I do believe that GM crops stunt your growth. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you've got a reputable researcher from a reputable institute saying that GM crops stunt your growth. It's unpublished research. So I reported that as is with the, with the yes. caution that this was the first that I heard of that. I was aware of the environmental concerns, but certainly the first time that anyone had expressed any serious concerns about the health health effects. And the story actually went away for several months, but the, the Rowett Institute actually had the stupidity to fire him, right. which suggested to the critics that they were hiding something. And a whole momentum built up, which led to a, a second bite of the cherry, if you like, in the Times in January, where a group of researchers, uh, campaigners, said how unfair it was. And that sparked the whole it lit the touch paper to a, coale- to a whole series of things coming together, anti-globalism, concern about the loss of biodiversity, concern about a lack of trust in the government to turn about into this wave against GM crops, particularly in Europe and the UK, which saw supermarkets take their food off the shelves. So as a science journalist, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, I thought that context would be helpful. All I could do was report on the science. I was, as a BBC journalist, uh, not in favour or opposed to it. Some of these geopolitical issues were not of interest, but it was about, do GM crops harm your health? And report after report said it didn't, but there were other issues which uh, fed into it. So I think that uh, this is where science journalists provide a service that other kinds of journalists uh, or, or even science communicators can't. Clearly, science reporters were reporting, but do you think the information that you were putting out uh, and explaining to people about science was getting through more generally to the the wider media and the wider population? Well, I was on the Today programme, so, you know, that's not the widest medium, but it it, it is mainstream (coughs) media. But actually, on a lot of the newspapers, it wasn't the science journalists that were reporting that story. It was the political journalists and uh, the environment correspondents who, at the time, many of whom didn't have a scientific background. They do now because of reporting on climate change. So it did become partisan reporting in many of the newspapers. But I think that uh, certainly on the BBC, we reported that story well. I'm not saying the BBC always gets it right. Most famously, we didn't get it right with MMR. But I do think that science journalism does have a a special role because part of, I don't claim to be an expert in any particular field, but I think that I've got a process 
which does involve talking to trusted guides and also the experience that I've built up, which means that I can't ignore the evidence base. And obviously, organisations like the BBC rightly look to, to, to balance an argument, to report both sides of an argument where, where there is an argument. What are the challenges of doing that where you've got science and perhaps where you've got scientists with conflicting opinions or conflicting evidence? Well, science is a process of conflict, a continuous conflict. It's a creative conflict where people are always challenging each other's ideas. But there's a, a body of evidence that grows and uh, some ideas rise and others fall. That's quite different from people who have no or little qualification in, in an area. Uh, and so the classic case is climate change. There are always these climate change sceptics that the BBC were balancing up with those who are warning of the dangers of climate change. And that was something that it took a long time to persuade, because one of the BBC's strengths is balance, uh, impartiality. It's absolutely crucial that we do uh, allow different parts of society to have their say. We can't dictate what the agenda should be. But the, the formulation is giving due weight to uh, arguments. So I think that it's uh, fair enough for people from uh, certain religious groups to argue against the morality of, say, stem cell research, but they're not qualified to argue about the science. And I think that as science journalists, we can advise our editors where we feel the weight in an argument lies. Similarly, with uh, climate change, I think there are people that can argue about the economic costs of increasing taxation, carbon taxes and so forth, but they're not qualified to argue about the science. So that is an argument that took us a little while to get our heads around. I think science journalists always knew where we were at uh, on that argument, but uh, it, it is something that uh, not just the BBC, but all mainstream media outlets have listened to and accepted. So obviously you spend a lot of time talking to scientists and there's there's been an emphasis in universities and elsewhere over the last decade or so to support their scientists in helping them improve how they themselves communicate to people like you. How do you think those things have changed? Are scientists better at communicating to the media now? I think the efforts to encourage scientists to communicate has really borne fruit. There was once a time when scientists were in their ivory towers doing whatever they do, not feeling a real need to explain, sometimes feeling irritated if uh, a member of the press dared to call them uh, about their work. And if they did speak, it would be largely in jargon. And of course, uh, not only uh, are they paid for by the taxpayer, but it was a time, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, where there was a suspicion of what scientists were doing, what science was doing to society. Did mobile phones ca cause cancer? What sort of strange creatures were scientists cooking up in their lab? So it, it was a, a suspicion. But I think that because of the efforts that scientists and the scientific community has made, uh, there is more transparency uh, and openness. People trust by and large, uh, what's going on. And uh, this current uh, COVID-19 epidemic, you see surrounding 
the ministers at the daily press briefing, uh, the chief scientific advisor, the chief medical officer. We're being guided by the science, not suspicious of the science. So um, I think as a specialist science journalist, it's, I've always found it easy and straightforward to speak to scientists, particularly working for the BBC. People tend to take my, have always taken my calls and I'm grateful for that. But I think there's an openness for people to take the calls of other journalists, maybe not even science journalists. Uh, there's more of a culture of openness. And I also think it's a generational thing that people since the 1980s do actually like talking about their work. And as a result, they're more integrated into the culture of our society. One of the other big changes over the last few years has been the rise of social media, rise of the internet more generally. People are drawing on their information for a wide variety of sources beyond watching the six o'clock and 10 o'clock news on the, on the BBC. How has this change altered the way that you do your job as a science journalist? Well, it's had a huge impact. A growing number of people, particularly young people, are getting their news through social media. And while it has a lot of advantages, it does mean that it's unfiltered. So people can choose to read the information they want. They don't necessarily have to go to a trusted guide. And what the BBC's done is that we've said we need to be part of that space because otherwise it will be dominated by fake science, uh, fake news. For example, the view that somehow coronavirus is linked to 5G networks and all sorts of silly ideas you've got to have. Yeah. BBC News as part of people's feeds. We've got to have a presence. It's as simple as that. But that said, it, it is challenging because you know, with Instagram and short Twitter messages, you don't really have the time to contextualise. People would say that a two-minute television reporter or a 40-second radio bulletin is no time to contextualise. But that problem's been magnified even further with social media, but it is something that we've got to be part of, not just us, but uh, the broadsheet newspapers as well. And I think that uh, it, it's one of these things that it's a constant battle, but it's better that we're out, we're in the, the mix rather than not. Yes, I, I think that's right. And so many people follow people on Twitter or on other, other things, and, uh, and, and you have to be out there, uh, and other journalists have to be out there as well. Let me focus a little bit on the government and, and the way that government uses science. And I know you, you've also been reporting on this for uh, quite some time. Now, you, you mentioned COVID-19 just uh, just recently with the chief scientist there. Have you noticed a change over the years in, in the way that government uses scientific evidence? I, I think governments of the, the British government has always valued its scientists, its uh, policy decisions are informed by science. Ever since I've been a science journalist, there have been some bumps on the road, most notably the BSE outbreak, when the advice from government and also a report, the notorious Southwood report, urged that eating beef was safe. I think that that was informed by the science. But as you and I know, that you know, science is not a single thing. That research changes and there's also good science and bad science. And I think that's a thing that government itself 
has to keep an eye on, just make sure that if uh, science is to be trusted within government, it is of the highest possible quality. And as a, I think as a result of that BSE incident, the government lost trust for a while. And to my mind, that was the reason that its message on the MMR vaccine, when, if you recall, uh, many people were not taking the MMR triple jab because of some evidence, minority evidence published in The Lancet that the triple jab was linked to Crohn's disease and uh, ill health, even though government ministers and scientists were saying that it was safe, people chose not to believe that. And it took a long time for that trust to be restored. I think, thankfully, we are now at a place where even in these very challenging times, people are believing the scientific advice. They are staying, by and large, staying at home and um, putting their faith in what uh, Sir Patrick Vallance and uh, Professor Chris Whitty are saying about the course of this epidemic. I think COVID is interesting because it, it's clearly an area where the government are being incredibly open about what the science is and how they are using it to make some of their decisions. But stepping away from coronavirus, uh, in general, how open do you think the government are about how they're using science to make their decisions and where they're balancing it against other non-scientific things? It is hard because uh, the default, I can't interview uh, government scientists. Government scientists do need to get permission to give interviews and for all sorts of, it's not to hide something, but Whitehall has a safety first culture. It's sure. not necessarily a secrecy first, but uh, whereas uh, scientists in the academic sector get praise for uh, talking to the media, so scientists working for government are criticised. They run the risk of saying the wrong thing. And very often when they feel they do want to talk about their important work, it may be at odds with certain government policies. And so my view is that uh, science journalism is, is a, a force that can be a constructive force. And uh, if, if certain things within government are, uh, if government research are shown to be counter to uh, government policy, that should be out in the open. It should government shouldn't be afraid of these things. So the most notable example of that was the policy on badger culling. There was a, a huge weight of scientific evidence that suggested that badger culling was unlikely to work. But for, in my opinion, political reasons, Successive governments carried on with the policy. They put their own spin on the science. They cherry-picked the science. And cherry-picked science isn't science at all. And the worst thing about it is that when the Department for Food and Rural Affairs starts misleading the public and journalists about science, as I feel that it did, how can the public trust it on other issues, other important issues like climate change? The, 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 I have to say I felt personally quite angry about the fact that they were risking trust in government science for the sake of one policy. So that's a, I, th I have to say that I feel that that's the exception rather than the rule. My main concern is the default position of not allowing government scientists to speak freely about the media and encouraging them to, to whistleblow if they feel that something 
is not done. So I think that's the next step for government to take, even though it might cause short term discomfort to departments and ministers. And of course, the other thing is the gross underfunding of departmental yeah. science. So that's a, that's a whole other interview. Yeah. But given the what you've just said about how hard it is to interview and speak with government scientists for, for understandable reasons, how effective do you think the uh, the wider media is in identifying areas where science hasn't been used well or is being misreported or cherry picked, as you said? Well, I, I suppose things come to our attention when, certainly in the national media, when they become a big story or perhaps when investigative reporters just drill down and find that something has been misreported. And it, it does require also a culture of openness uh, within government. So if uh, there's a government lab that does spot something that's of concern, their first duty is to report it to their support superiors up the chain of government, but I think that various departments, their first thought, as is the case with the Department of Health, is to how can we get this out there in a responsible way, whereas there may be other departments where the first thought is, well, how can we sort this out without many people knowing about it? On the positive side, you've uh, been quite complimentary about the way that the government has been using its scientists to talk about coronavirus and COVID-19 over the last few weeks. How well is it explaining the science at the moment? Do you feel that there's a a good communication between government and people like you and between you and the, and the general public? Well, I hardly get to speak to the scientists. I was lucky enough to do a Downing Street briefing on Saturday, but usually it's the political correspondents that uh, get to ask uh, ministers largely, but also the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor uh, questions. Uh, the government's chief scientific advisor is keen for uh, science journalists to ask questions. They have given one public briefing. I think they're keen for the science to be cross-examined in more detail rather than the more uh, confrontational grandstanding, if I can describe it as that, uh, yeah. interviews. I, I think it, when reporters are really are allowed to ask one question and perhaps one follow-up, it doesn't really shed that much light. I think that what has been the case is that there are people like uh, uh, Sir Patrick and uh, Neil Ferguson and others that are giving media interviews that is getting the science out there. So that's how I'm getting most of my information, trying my best to explain it, because I really do think that it is important for the public to be able to understand the science if they're going to get their heads around what's going to be an even more dreadful situation in the coming days and weeks. Yeah. It, it is difficult when these people are busy, they only have time to give briefings once or twice a week. And if if that's the case, then it's going to be the, the big beasts in the newsrooms that are going to want to pile in there. So science journalists have risen in the pecking order in newsrooms, but they're not quite at the same level as the political correspondents at this stage. So not ideal, but uh, I'm able to do a job now that I wasn't able to before. But that's yeah. largely thanks to the valiant efforts of the scientists communicating rather than the access that we were able to get. 
So I want to finish on something something different because I know you've been uh, in science journalism for many years, uh, and you must have interviewed some really interesting people over that time. What do you think has been your most memorable interview? Well, there's just one answer to that, and that's Neil Armstrong. Okay. I'm one of the very few journalists to have interviewed him. And this was when I was a, a young science journalist at Cambridge working for Look East. And, you know, I, it was a good beat. I was reporting on the little known human genome project at the time. And they were doing these things that no one had heard of in um, Norwich called GM crops. And I was just getting all sorts of and in Ipswich at BT Research Labs. They told me about this thing called the World Wide Web. And I found that I was the first journal, broadcast journalist to report on it. So it wasn't as if I was doing silly yeah. stories at the time. But the phone rang and it was Cranfield University. And they said that Neil Armstrong was going to be receiving an honorary degree. And I thought they were going to ask me if I'd like to report on it, which of course I, I would. They said, would you like to do an interview with him? And you know, <laughs> I myself off the floor. I said, yes. And then they said, how much time would you like with him? And I was just aghast. I said, well, an hour would be brilliant. And they said, OK, so, that, you know, we'll put you down for two till three o'clock. And uh, so I just kind of put the, the phone down. And unfortunately, it was two weeks to go before this event. And it was felt like I was five years old again. And uh, Christmas was coming. I just could barely sleep. Of course, uh, as a you know, I did my research, I read my books, and I sort of developed a whole, this whole list of questions that I just wanted to ask him um, because very few, I think only one other person to my knowledge had had this opportunity. And on the day, I was so excited that I went at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, with the cameraman and arrived to a deserted Cranfield University campus. Uh, and the cameraman was saying, well, where is he? And he was getting impatient. And I was realised that uh, we were probably going to sit around with nothing to do. And then I saw him in the distance having his photograph taken with his gown and posing for pictures. And so I couldn't wait till two o'clock. <laughs> so I just rushed up to him with the cameraman and doorstepped him. And of course, he, he was a very nice man. And I yeah. said, so sorry, Mr. Armstrong, but may I ask you a couple of questions? And he said, of course. Working for Look East, it was like, how is it like to be at Cranfield University? And he said he was nice to be back among friends. And he had a connection with Cranfield and whatever. And then, you know, just being in his presence, I was just totally starstruck. I'd forgotten all the questions I wanted to ask him. And so I, he'd finished his answer. I thought, um, um, uh, so you like being here then, do you? And, and he, you know, he said, yes, he likes but, you know, repeated his answer. And I thought, here I am asking the first man to set foot on the moon what it's like being at Cranfield University several times. Pull yourself together. And then I did remember one of the questions I really wanted to ask him, which was um, when I was growing up, the very stars seemed within our sight. But uh, so this was in the, the late 90s. Back then, we thought we could explore other worlds and reach for the stars whatever happened to the Armstrong dream and then he gave an answer which um, even though I screwed up my opportunity it was worth it for that one answer he said oh the reality may have faded but the dream is still there and it'll come back in time 
And then I said, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Armstrong. And then he just kind of uh, said goodbye. And I didn't get my one hour interview, but at least I got an answer about how glad he was to be at Cranford University and an answer that set not just, it set my, my soul straight that, you know, it wasn't just about traveling to other worlds, but a sense of optimism about the future uh, uh, and humanity. Uh, so he gave me that golden answer that uh, is, uh, I'd say, my best moment as a science journalist. Brilliant. What a wonderful story and uh, what a great place to finish. Palab Ghosh, thank you very much. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.